welcome to New Game Netcast, the official podcast of NewGameNetwork.com. This is episode number one for Sunday, April 1st, 2012. Today on the show, we'll be recapping the latest news and articles posted on the site over the past couple of weeks. We'll also be discussing the current situation of the retailer game in the UK. We'll chat about Konami, releasing three Silent Hill games in the same month, as well as ESRB, altering the Risen 2 box art. Our controversial topics will include the much-discussed Mass Effect 3 endings, as well as leak of Grand Theft Auto 5 information. We'll discuss used games being blocked in future consoles, and of course, what we're all currently playing. Finally, stay tuned for Question of the Show, where we talk about our three favorite game endings. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today are Peter. Hello. Evan. Great to be here. Matthew. Hello. And Tim. Hi there. And this is the very first New Game Netcast from NewGameNetwork.com. And we'll be talking about a variety of topics today, starting with some big news on the site, uh, news that our visitors were most interested in. So one of the bigger announcements was the inclusion of New Game Network as part of game rankings. So woohoo to that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Enthusiasm. Uh, essentially, this means that uh, all of our reviews and previews in the future will appear on GameRankings.com. Um, we went through a very notoriously difficult acceptance process, which has uh, obviously allowed us to pass. Game Rankings is um, a kind of search aggregator for gaming scores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in, right. In, in, in the vein, the vein of, of uh, Metacritic. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, um, a purely gaming Metacritic. Yeah. Um, while in the IGN alternative is GameStats, but that one's open to pretty much everybody who's got an account and wants to post their articles and, and things like that. So this was a little more complicated, a little more of a higher bar, if you will. So we're quite excited yeah. to be on there. Right on. So one of the other bigger stories was the DLC for um, Reckoning. Um, I don't know how many people have played it here that are on this podcast. Kingdoms and Albo. Albo. Yeah. I have not played it. It was written by R.A. Salvatore, though. Or rather, Salvatore. One of our staff members who actually reviewed it isn't actually part of this podcast today, but... He um, he mentioned that it was quite a good game, but given the amount of uh, high talent people that were involved with it, it didn't really come out quite as excellent as it could have been. And I personally played the demo extensively, and I thought that it was it was it was borrowing heavily from a wide number of games, but not really standing out in its own way. Uh, but nonetheless, it seems like people are quite excited for this DLC. From what I understand, it is actually quite substantial as well. So. It was the main story and concept was by Ari Salvatore, who's obviously done, you know, the uh, um, Drizzit books and the um, other ones as well in the kind right. of... Right. I'm trying that, to remember, uh, what's the name of that universe? Is it, does this, uh, uh, the universe that usually writes within, um, it's got a couple different writers working for it. Come on. It, the Drizzit legends take place in it. Help me yeah. out here. It's, it's some, something realms, isn't it? Yeah, Forgotten Realms. Forgot, forgotten Realms. Forgotten yeah. Realms. Is a, but yeah, that, that's the strange kind of uh, dichotomy you have, is when you have someone who's well-established as an author, 
lending themselves to um, a game. But obviously, you know, that it can impact the quality of it, but it doesn't always transfer over. That's the it's problem. Funny. It's funny. You say people, you say you've heard that, uh, I'm sorry, did you say that it doesn't sound like this would be a great, um, it might not be high quality, you said? or I'm saying, uh, what I'm saying is that um, it can be tricky because with the name comes a lot of hype and raised expectations. But mm-hmm. that doesn't always guarantee that it will be, um, you know, a quality product. Because well, I would imagine of... writing a video game script is very different, so. It, it depends. You have to allow for more action and um, other things like that. But in terms of progression as well. That's funny because I've, uh, I've you know, read a bit of Ari Salvatore, and I always thought that his writing would translate well to video game. He's very action-oriented. He's very colorful characters. Every time I see sort of standard fantasy setting, you know, with uh, glowing axes and the like, I say, ah, Ari Salvatore, you know, is probably, is probably writing that. I would think that in this case, that's probably what they were thinking when they had him write this. Well, or that, you know, he's... It, the, he has the qualities that his writing sometimes feels like a video game. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And Whether I think that's good or bad. I think that was mentioned in the review as well, um, which we scored, by the way, I think a 72 for the game. So it's not too bad. No, absolutely, but uh, it certainly didn't quite reach the level of expectations that uh, many people had, I think. So moving on, another hot topic this week was the news of Guild Wars 2, an upcoming MMO from ArenaNet and NCSoft will feature real money microtransactions. And so is... Zynga, hardcore. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, not unlike something that was done in EVE Online, whereas you cannot yeah. buy gold directly. Instead, what you do is you buy gems, which can be used only to purchase vanity items in the game. And then if you want to get the in-game gold, you actually have to trade um, gems for gold. And obviously the only way to get gold is to play the game so players who actually you know earn the gold will be able to control the exchange rate for gems which are bought with real money and you know obviously so there will be a in-game economic collapse at some point <laughs> in the future why is that i don't know it, it, it didn't it happen wasn't there problems with uh, stuff like warcraft with obviously people scamming as well and yes absolutely there. and, and like S- I said, starcraft I as well i don't think that uh, having this system will eliminate gold farming or any of that. Yeah, someone will find a way. Exactly. Find exactly. A way. But I think it's a good opportunity for them to at least have some, uh, I guess, official structured uh, revenue coming in. Yeah, because they do need it if it's yeah. free, obviously, to play. Guild Wars 2 is, will, will, of course, not have any monthly fees, mm-hmm. uh, the same as the original. However, um, it will be a much more full-featured MMO with, um, you know, persistent online worlds rather mm. than having instances. So Does that it won't... have any kind of entry cost? Or is it totally free? No, it, it is a standard game that you have to go and buy for 50 or $60 or what have you. Okay. Just like the original was. Cool. Moving on. Modern Warfare 3 DLC pack number one has arrived, which includes all of the maps that have been released so far, uh, and it is finally available to those who are not the Call of Duty Elite subscribers. Oh, God. So How much is it? <laughs> is oh. anyone here a Call of Duty Elite subscriber? No. No, no one is. Yeah, I am. <laughs> no. no, I am not either. How but much is this DLC pack? Uh, it's 1,200 Microsoft points. Uh, it's 15 bucks. Yeah, 15. Oh, okay. It's $15, and it includes uh, two maps... Uh, for co-op 
and four multiplayer maps. And I guess, like I said, the um, it's obviously available free to people who have has the Elite, which includes all of yeah. the DLC and it's early and whatnot. Yeah. So, but who's, who still plays Modern Warfare Three? Quite a lot of people. I, I personally oh, yeah, uninstalled it a while ago. You would be surprised, but it it is constantly on top of uh, Xbox Live activity, so it's no no doubt about its popularity. I think. Next up, we have a couple of publishers revealing their lineup for PAX East 2012, which is happening next weekend. That is April 6th, 7th, and 8th. It's the um, annual lineup of all things geek, which was started by the um, Penny Arcade comics. And uh, a lot of publishers in recent years have took up quite a bit of interest in it, so there's going to be a ton of things to play, a ton of things to see. Have we got uh, Square Enix there, you said? Well, there's going to be all kinds of uh, publishers and developers there showing off their games. So it's become quite a big deal. Um, I would say it's comparable to the E3, except for a, a public consumption, if you will. Yeah. Are there any uh, major announcements expected of this? Potentially. Last year, uh, I believe <laughs> Duke Nukem Forever was oh. finally revealed. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and Borderlands 2, I think, was announced at PAX Prime, which actually takes place in the fall. These days, it's things leak so far in advance, it's hard to be surprised at anything anymore. Yeah. So it's nice to have some surprises there. Mm-hmm. And the last piece of news that we've had is EverQuest going free-to-play. After all these years, you can finally check out what the hype is about. After EverQuest 2 has gone free-to-play... Yeah. Well, yes, <laughs> the original. So, so when when did this come out? The original one was it? Nineteen ninety nine was it? It must have been a while ago. Nineteen ninety nine, yeah. I'm so, eager to see. I'm eager to see if this. I want to say if it works out for them. I mean, so many MMOs are going on the free to play model. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I look at that, it seems like the the point is to you know, the, the point is to draw you is to draw you in. But why would you free to play? I, I, I want to say an older game, <laughs> unless it's put in stock in the company itself. Oh, that could be it. Yeah. You know, to be uh, because then maybe you'd want to check out, you know, EverQuest Two. You know what I mean? Because yeah, it's, been out, it's been out for so long, they don't really lose much apart from you know paying for servers if that's uh, how they do it. Well, exactly. It's not, it's not like I can't imagine many people are going to buy the game now or, or or pay for a subscription for it. So it's kind of like they've got nothing to lose. Why not make it free after all these years? Do you think there were a lot of people doing that before? I mean, I don't know what the uh, population counts, I guess, of EverQuest versus EverQuest 2 are, but... It was in the millions, I think, at its peak. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. Definitely. Yeah, it was. It used to be uh, the biggest one, I think, EverQuest 2. Yeah, absolutely. And then... it was, it was well, no, I mean... No, I mean uh, com- Comparing the two, comparing the two, like right it's now, how many people you know, are you know, playing playing EverQuest Quest One, but not EverQuest Two, or vice versa? Oh, I see what you're saying, because you're basically saying that you have a sequel by well, the original. I, well, yeah, I'm wondering if this is, I'm wondering if this is a case where you know most people transitioned over to the sequel or whatever, and that's one reason to go ahead and make it free to play. You know, if there's not a big loss, so to speak. I don't know, but from what I understand. They were quite different in both their design and you know what you could do with the game. So, as much as it is a sequel, um, I think it's still considered to be two rather different games because they are both you know MMOs and 
have different kind of gameplay mechanics. So, but yeah, because we're separate audiences. Potentially, yeah. It's smart on their part. Mm. Okay, next up we'll talk about some of the articles that have gone live on the site. First up, we have Mass Effect 3, the big review, the controversial review, if you will. We have Tim, who wrote it here with us today. It was a bit of a challenging review to write, because on one hand, there was all these all this uh, critical praise lavished upon the game, and on the other hand, the community wasn't up in arms about the uh, ending, and everyone was hating on it. And I, I just tried to ignore all of that. I don't know, I thought, if you looked at it as a whole, it was a pretty, a pretty great package, despite the ending maybe not being quite what people were uh, after. But, uh, yeah, I, I tried I tried to ignore the uh, controversy surrounding the game's release when I gave it a uh, review score of 86, which is still, for me, the lowest uh, score that I gave any of the three games. Yeah. The lowest score? Because you, uh, you also said that in many ways, you know, ma- you know, major, well, I guess this is obvious, but major flaws aside... It's the best of the it's the best of the three games, but I guess only in certain areas. Is is this a case of this is an excellent game except it has one or two flaws that drag it down? Yes, that's exactly right. The things that are pretty important, like uh, the combat, I thought was the best of the three games in Mass Effect Three, and it was also mm. story driven rather than character driven, which also made it kind of a more exciting experience. Okay, next up we have Matthew, who actually wrote. Um, a special editorial piece. So basically, I just played um, both Journey and Mass Effect 3. Uh, I think finished them both about two weeks ago. And um, playing both at the same time, I was kind of struck by how opposite their approaches to narrative are. And that's where that article came from. It's just about how completely juxtaposed they are. Um, one's completely filled with information, um, it's saturated with facts and, and figures and things like that. Whereas the other is just completely open to interpretation. And which, out of curiosity, which one do you find more enjoyable, and why? Uh, personally, I, I found Journey more enjoyable as a narrative experience, just because I like that kind of thing. I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. But it, it, that's not to say that I didn't enjoy Mass Effect. I still enjoyed Mass Effect's story, but um, I quite like how Journey was. It was it was more personal for me. I agree with that. I mean, we can go on very lengthy discussions about uh, a topic as deep as this yeah. but i thought i thought it was quite an interesting comparison with two such highly contrasting games as you've mentioned mm. apples and oranges basically yeah pretty much all right and we're staying with matthew we have up next your review of journey itself <laughs> yeah uh, so you, as you can probably tell from what I just said, um, I, I pretty much I love Journey. Journey is the kind of game that I really enjoy. Um, I thought it was a great experience, a unique experience. Um, I liked how it, it basically um, boiled down a video game adventure to its its um, its basic format and left a lot open to your own your your own personal interpretation. And you did give it a ninety, which is our yeah. Pretty high. Highest rated game of the year so far. All right, cool. Uh, I had a question on that. Um, I oh. I played just a little bit of Journey. A friend handed me the control real quick and said, "Hey, fiddle with this, see what you think." Yeah. Uh, but I hear a lot about how people were kind of touched by the multiplayer being so minimalistic. Uh, let me see. You can't interact with someone beyond. 
it sounds dull, doesn't it? Really, it sounds boring when you read about it. But it's well, right. But that makes it makes me wonder. Then why does everyone seems to notice it and kind of like it for some reason? And I was wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah, sure. Because it's um, because it's so unique in a way. Because it's so simplistic. Um, There's kind of no barriers there. You don't know. You don't know who you're playing with. You, You have no preconceptions about that person. I mean, my girlfriend was playing it, and she thought it was great. She was going along with this this um, companion, and uh, it turns out that she was actually playing with someone called Killer Noob Seven, which, <laughs> which you know, if she'd, she'd have known that beforehand, she'd have probably thought, "Oh, what a douche! I don't want to play with him." But it kind of, yeah, it's just it's just unique in that you don't know anything about the person you're playing with, and you have such limited interactions. And yeah, does it? Uh, does the game require? Uh, does the game re- require cooperation between the two of you, or is there any is there any reason to travel with a companion aside uh, there's, from? There's, there's no requirement. It's you can progress through the entire game without a companion, but um, uh, you can kind of charge each other's scarves, which gives you power to jump. So there is there is a slight benefit to it, but it's it's absolutely unnecessary. Apart from that, and I think that's kind of what makes it unique, um, and I guess not worthy as well. And the final two articles that we've posted for the past two weeks were actually two of mine. Two sports reviews. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, reviews of uh, MLB 12, the show, which was scored an 80, and FIFA Street, which was scored a 79. So two pretty darn good sports games, I think. Um, for MLB, it's just Sony knocking it out of the park once again, as much as the... 2K Sports Series tries to compete. I think Sony has been able to produce the better of the two baseball games on the market year after year. And as much as it is um, yet another yearly edition, I suppose, of a sports game, it brings just enough new features to warrant purchase. But it does remain to be a very hardcore experience that new players might have some trouble with. I always wonder on sports games, especially releasing yearly you know, sort of th- making it this year's model of game, I assume, including new players, uh, you know, from the new players for the roster type thing. What makes what makes a yearly release good or bad? You know, why would, how could 2012 release be a, an excellent game compared to the 2010 release, which wasn't all that great? Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of the sports franchises kind of struggle with, and some of them have the answer year after year. Some of them have off years, you know. There's like, definitely... are you looking for gameplay changes? Uh, well, you know, not well. Absolutely, gameplay. there's. Um, I absolutely there is the gameplay to consider. The while well, the roster updates kind of come without, um, you know, without any question that there has to be roster updates, but. Uh, certainly gameplay, either updates or even new modes uh, usually include. For example, the MLB 12 this year includes full support for the PlayStation Move. So, you know, definitely added value there. And, yeah, I, I mean, definitely sports games kind of have to answer that question year after year. And some do, such as the EA Sports FIFA series. I think that series has progressed significantly over the years just in the kinds of things that they added, like, the ability to play goalkeeper, significantly expanding the leagues and players that are available in the game, and you know, yeah, the, the, FIFA's had a lot of um, gameplay improvements over the years as well. A lot yeah. of new interesting gameplay with physics and things. I agree, and but then on the other hand, series like the NHL franchise from EA has been somewhat stagnating. 
for the past mm-hmm. little while, especially because they don't have competition at the time, because the 2K Sports NHL series has dropped since um, 09, I believe. So now it's just EA, and they've kind of been messing around with casual features like adding legendary players, but, you know, it's becoming hard to justify for fans who already own last year's version that they should buy it again this year. So that's definitely something right. that, that comes up. And so my other review was of FIFA Street, and this was a an interesting a diversion, I should say, from the main franchise. Um, it's a reboot of the FIFA Street series, which was originally kind of a cartoony, arcade-ish, mess-around type of thing. It's been revamped to a much more serious experience, playing with uh, the FIFA 12 engine, so everything's completely realistic. And aside from a few issues, like uh, everything being animations-based, so you don't have as much control over the ball, especially on defense, as you might want. Apart from that, I think it's a good it's a good sports title, especially for people that perhaps enjoy indoor soccer and, and street-style trick-based action, I guess. Well, it sounds like it's gone slightly more serious. Uh, do you not think that's muted the style of it somewhat? Because that's what I kind of enjoyed about the FIFA Street series compared to, say, actual the full full-on FIFA game. It, it was wacky and crazy and out there. Well, I think it's better for going a bit more realistic, uh, and it still has that street atmosphere because it has a very different presentation from the FIFA from the FIFA series. Okay. Because uh, you can really just get into the game because you can hear all the players in the field. Like you don't just, you know, hear the crowd chanting or, or commentators. You actually hear, um, you know, real time reactions from the players in the field as you pull off crazy tricks and on your teammates go, oh, that's <laughs> awesome, you know. And uh, they they call for passes and and they you know say, cover this guy, cover that guy, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very different atmosphere and that. That makes it uh, a unique enough experience to create a different game from from FIFA 12, cool. which I think is the main concern because in the past years there has been saturation where EA released you know a FIFA game, a FIFA Street game, uh, a game based on a championship such as the Euro, which is coming up this summer. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. speaking of that, actually, I think they've done a great job by deciding to make it a DLC rather than a retail release this time around. Because that really helps avoid the saturation of the FIFA games, and it's probably not, you know, uh, probably not going to carry enough new features to warrant a retail $60 price tag. So I think they finally did a very good um, job of deciding to make it a DLC instead of a standalone release. Yeah. Cool. All right, next we'll talk about some of the controversial topics of the past two weeks. And first up, we have the whole situation in the UK with the retailer game going through a ton of financial trouble and closing its doors. And actually, the update today is that they finally found a buyer who says that no more stores will be closed and potentially the franchise will remain alive as it is. So what do you guys think about um, the whole scenario of game actually being in trouble in the first place? It tore my heart out to see a one a picture on an article. Not, not that game was closing, although that is also sad. But there was a picture on an article that I read that showed one of the stores with a big sign on the front saying, "We are no longer trading. The nearest store is GameStation," and gave the address. 
to just sort of pass on its customers and let them know where you could go for Dude, that, the joy that, that of game probably training. my local one. <laughs> oh, maybe it was yours. <laughs> yeah. But I think it <laughs> speaks to the amount of, uh, of of how all the markets for games are going completely digital. I know I know other uh, digital media stores like Blockbuster had to close down for similar reasons because everyone's just getting everything online. It's cheaper, it's easier, and uh, yeah. It kind of makes more sense for, well, to me anyways, for gamers to download things. I, I personally, um, if everything was the same price, then I personally would download everything because it just kind of saves, I don't know, shelf space and having to go out and get it. I know it's incredibly lazy, but if you can just click <laughs> a button and download it, then seems easier. You don't, you, you don't put stock in the, the joy of having the box or the little you know strategy guide that comes with it or knowing that you <laughs> own the game. Yeah, mate, well, not anymore. I, I'm not really bothered about that, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, I think, I'm right there I think you. though, you have to be considerate of, of those who live uh, perhaps with bandwidth caps or yeah. slow internet access. I don't, I don't think retail is going to go anytime soon, as much as it's been rumored that next generation of consoles might not have a disk drive. I don't think that's true. I think it's for sure needs to have accessibility by way of retail to actually get the product out there to those who don't have the crazy internet speeds or, or, or bandwidth allotments to actually... No, I don't, I don't think the market penetration of, um, of uh, high-quality broadband is big enough yet to, exactly. to for the full transition to occur, but um, gaming's pretty much at the forefront, isn't it? The forefront of downloading content. Um, it's pretty much... It's probably the biggest medium for it. With networks, you're able to stream... Uh, and that's yeah. kind of their whole business model with games. Although there is the OnLive uh, yeah. and a couple other services that offer streaming, I don't think it's quite there yet for games because of the whole issue of delay and, again, uh, the issue of bandwidth. Delay and tape. Well, basically, we need, like, um, fiber optic internet like they have in, a, I think it's Korea or somewhere like that, where it is, like, 100... Pretty sure it's uh, Japan, dude. Japan, is yeah. It, well, is, it, is it not Korea as well? Okay, it might be as well, but I think it's <laughs> the, the south part, obviously, not the north part. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think they have it there as well. But unless you can get to that kind of speed. But the thing with game is, is that as um, technology and consumerism um, develops, then um, they'll cut out the middleman as much as possible because it saves the company money and it saves the consumer money. And basically, both sides are concerned with the bottom line and. Uh, Having someone in the middle for nostalgia's sake, rather than a business sense, is it ne- never you know works out. Look at bookstores, look at video. It just you know it phases out. That's just how it is. Exactly, there will, think... will be that transition, but yeah, it's dependent upon technology. But I think that's contributed the whole digital downloads these days. That's contributed to um, what happened to game. But um, they've been. Bought now, haven't they? Game have been um, bought by Op Capita, the yeah. private investment company. And for, I for think what? I don't know. No, for no, what? I don't know. But having said all that, I think we all agree that the digital market is strong, but retail is not going anywhere. So why do you think that game, a retailer this large, was actually in trouble, whereas um, you know across the ocean we have GameStop, who arguably has the same ridiculous practices and high prices and, and, and you know terrible trade-in offers. They're doing quite fine. What do you think it was about game in particular that actually caused them to have so much trouble? Was it actually even worse management than GameStop, or was it something else? Too many stores was the problem. Is that right? 
I think, um, where where I was from. They had um, two game stores, and one was uh, just clearly for new release titles. And obviously, there's a lot of um, second-hand stuff as well that they can't stock, and they've got piled up in warehouses. And like I was saying, it's um, the stores are really there for the... I, I don't want to be like offending, offensive, but um, for less tech-savvy people who maybe don't know about Steam or digital downloads, um, but other stores as well, like, um, like you know, the Best Buy in America and Walmart, because of they expand into technologies, they can have the games cheaper as well because they've got a wider reach than someone like Game, which purely um, relies on its uh, video games, pretty much. So they had no market, really? Not anymore, as other companies expanded. And uh, there were a lot of stores, and because they bought um, GameStation, because that was proving quite popular, because people saw it as less consumerist and more um, appealing to people, whereas Game was kind of seen as this, you know, monolith of a company with these uh, robots on the front desk kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, it's just, just not as many people go there now, and the shops are usually quite empty, and that's where they have a lot of promotional offers, and they sell a lot of high-priced peripherals that... Uh, are made for about a few pence but sell for about 50 pounds it's just it's just not viable and they didn't really um expand or change they just kind of stagnated and so, that's where, where they suffered so then having said all that we agree then that the retail space is not going anywhere but do you think that these kind of specialized stores that only deal with video games do you think their days are numbered do you think oh, we so need game only stores anymore no not really it's we don't need them. They're there. You know, if you want perhaps a more industry-centric view, you know, for somebody, if you are slightly don't know what you're looking for. But right. again, Best best Buy have sections for that. Right. Yeah, and in England, it's, it's Tesco and Asda. Yeah, you can still go there and get pretty much the same selection as what you get at game these days. So. Yeah. Well, it depends on location as well. I mean, if you have like a, a GameStop right next to a Walmart, and Walmart has the same stuff, but for less, you'll go into the Walmart. But if there's a GameStop, like uh, 50 miles away from any uh, Walmart or Best Buy, they'll they'll go to GameStop anyways. Yeah, Kim convenience plays a part. Um, and if somebody doesn't mind, you know, waiting for a couple of days, you know, they can even um, get it sent to them, or they can do stuff where you know you can down download a lot of the game uh, packaging, say off Steam or something, and then on release day you just get the integral parts. There's that as well. Yeah. As, as, as well as price, you know, it's yeah. just it's making it easier for the consumer to have it. It wins out, really, and costs too. So, considering that game are still going to be kept alive by uh, Opcapita, um, what do you guys think that they, they should be doing to diversify, maybe, or change to survive, considering the change in market? Do you think that they should have a download service, something? I think uh, GameStop bought uh, a download service not too long ago. I don't recall what it was, but so they are definitely trying to evolve here in North America, anyways. Um, and and so, uh, it's been it's been actually the best part of their business, from what I understand. Yeah. The last they said uh, physical sales are down, but our digital sales are up. So I think definitely game would might want to look at something like that. I don't know if they would go through a rebrand. It it really yeah. depends on what the new buyers want to do with it, because now mm-hmm. they pretty much bought it, so it's their problem. So we'll see what they come up with. Well, yeah, well, basically. I- Basically, they have to offer something that Amazon can't, that 
other downloaders can't. You know, whether it's that's why we've got all the uh, you know special DLC and stuff. That's you know that'll win out. You know, something that people the masses want instead of you can get anywhere else. Don't get me so started how- on retail exclusive DLC, please. I, I know it's annoying, but you know, for money. Having said that, though, don't does anyone else kind of feel like the the download market might be getting a little saturated? I want to say. I mean, we have a lot of different ways to download games now. That's fine. I think that's competition, right? Yeah. Well, it fine. is, but the only, I guess. Do you think game could just pick up and you know join in? I mean, if we already have GameStop and Amazon and, and, and Steam and you know that's just that's true. Just, they would be behind the curve system. if they decided to get in on that. How creative of DLC would you have to have to start bringing well, in customers? I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's DLC. I think GCF it's... DLC? It's, well, it's competition, so they would just need to offer good digital sales that, that you know, match Steam, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all they really need to do to be, to be relevant. Look at Green Man Gaming. They're a pretty small website, but they exactly. always have outrageous deals, and uh, everyone buys stuff from them because their games are just so cheap a lot of the time. Exactly. Yeah. I think the only problem with digital is the whole how many applications you have to install to get things going. So you have Steam, you have uh, Origin now. So as long as it doesn't get any wilder on that side of things, oversaturated in terms of how much stuff you have to install to even play these games, then digital retails are fine, really, I think. Okay, moving on. So one of the other cool news that we've come across was Konami uh, deciding to release... Three different Silent Hill games in the same month. Those games being Silent Hill HD Collection, which includes Silent Hill 1 and 2, uh, Silent Hill Downpour, which is a brand new release, and Book of Memories, which was actually delayed recently, so it's not going to be three games in a month, but nonetheless, they were officially planning to and set release dates for all of those games all within March. Do you think that was a good idea? When you said that the third title was was delayed, I was about to say I'll bet you that I'll bet you that the releasing three titles in in one month was part of the reason for the delay, and you know that they, that someone said, hey, maybe that you know maybe we're starting to encroach on our own market. But then when you pointed out that that third title is for the is for the Vita, you said, yep. Yeah, I would think I would think you can't. You can't encroach on your own market if it's on if it's on a separate system, you know. Potentially, but how much uh, marketing budget do you have, let's say, to release three games in the same month to advertise them all appropriately and then have no releases until I don't know for how long, right? Yeah, not, I mean, you're saturating maybe not the market but your own franchise. You mean the consciousness of the public if they see exactly. these, these three games coming out. Yeah, and if they have the marketing dollars to promote all three games separately in the same month. Yeah, and it's kind of a boy, if you're a Silent Hill fan and you're interested in all three, that's quite a big chunk of money just to spend on one franchise. In exactly, month. exactly. I'll bet you if you were yeah, if you were a Silent Hill fan, what they would, I think maybe what they could be afraid of is you're going to pick one or two of the three, but if they can just spread them out just a little, you might get all of them. Yeah. I don't think there's any point in releasing three games in the same month. I mean, really, it doesn't do any favors to your brand, I think, or to your advertising budgets. Unless it's, you know, to make as much money as possible, you know, in that short window. But so how, would you, how would you do that if people can't afford to buy all three games at the same time? 
Uh, well, you know, there, there will be some people that can afford it, and then the others that will maybe uh, bank it, especially with you know HD collections because they can be quite cheap and you can download them so easily. Um, you know, you can just jump on that, and then maybe with you can get downpour, and for people who have a beta, can just go that. So maybe it's not so much um, saturation. Maybe it's just giving you the options to have to play a Silent Hill in you know a number of different ways. That's potentially true, but you know who would be the target audience for that? It's you know, I think you can say that with a lot of um, yeah, but not. I don't think it's common to release three games of the same franchise. Oh, oh, it it it's not. But you know, you can release a game on a day with lots of uh, downloadable content. You know, if you look at something like Final Fantasy, uh, was it thirteen two, where there was DLCs coming out a few days after, um, like several. And again, the thing is, well, how, how, how are we supposed to download all of these? But, you know, if they're there, somebody will get them. I suppose so, yeah. I guess that's... Yeah, I guess there, that's, there, will, that's, there will be a certain group of people who will pick up all three, like diehard fans, yeah. But for your average consumer, I'd definitely say it's a bit of saturation. Next hot topic for discussion, which is actually a quirky one, the box art for the upcoming RPG sequel Risen 2 was changed for North America because ESRB, the association which gives the video game ratings in this fine continent of ours, has decided that the box art contained too much of what looked like blood, so they asked the publishers to change it, and they did, so now there is just the harmless skull and crossbones there. And a strange turquoise color behind it. It doesn't look like blood, though. It looks like paint or something else. Well, it was blood-like, which was actually the wording they used to announce the request of changing of the box art. Which is ultimately pointless, but there we go. I think, you know, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but this (laughs) actually doesn't bother me that bad, just because there have been so many horrible, horrible cases of video game, silly video game censorship that little things like changing the color of whatever liquid is on the, the cover of the, the box art, this keeps the censors happy without really causing too much trouble. You know what yeah, I, mean? I don't, like I said, I don't think it's a big deal. It's, it's, it is kind of quirky and, um, you know, worth of note, I think. It's kind of odd, especially because ESRB isn't really one to censor things. It, that would be more of an Australian thing. Or German. German. Or German, yes. Yeah. But it's obviously happened before, like, you know, with um, Grand Theft Auto, where the blood was changed to uh, Green, was it, and in House of the Dead. But um, they have a kind of strange relationship with violence sensors um, in games anyway, but not to something like, um, if you like, game covers with, uh, you know, women on them and stuff like that. that. That kind of objectification is seen as it's okay because it's, um, you know, it's polygons and it's pixels. So you can have someone, you know, dressed in like a piece of string. That That's okay. But if there's something that kind of looks a bit like blood, then that is going to yeah. somehow affect you more. Yeah, it's definitely odd. It's so funny. For the movie rating system in the U.S., we face the same problem as far as sexuality isn't really... Uh, compar- comparatively, for some reason, in video games and movies, violence is a way bigger hot topic issue than sexuality. Mm. And... Uh, it just kind of, it kind of surprises me. You can get away with more though, um, violently, than you can because um, I think it's if you have someone um, being shot or um, stabbed or something, but it doesn't linger on too much, then you can get away with 
I think it's like a, whatever the equivalent of a PG-13 is. But if you have um, women, like, uh, you know, getting off with each other, then that automatically bumps it up another ratings class. So it's, they have a, you know, it's like if people <laughs> see two women kiss, then obviously, you know, the earth opens up and it sucks us all into hell. Let's not get too excited <laughs> let me get this. Let me get this straight, though. So it's it's okay to use it's okay to use the women to advertise, and get as long shot, as you're, yeah. as, as long as the content is violent. That's yeah, the... as, as long as it's not um, sexual between um, two women or two men. But you know oh, the you. the nuclear in in you know in commas inverted commas um, is is okay. You can get away with that. The best way to say it is there needs to be some consistency. I think just going back to the box art. I mean, we have stuff like the mutilated hand on the Left for Dead series. Oh, I remember, on, yeah. And you have the same kind of violence things going on on the cover of Dead Space, and yeah. those, you know, have been going through and through without a problem. So it's just a little bit of uh, consistency would be nice, I think. Next up, we'll talk about some controversial things, which will take up even more time. And we're actually going to go back to Mass Effect 3, the ending, and we'll try to be as spoiler-free as possible. And we'll talk about how much it sucks or it doesn't suck, or if the fans are acting entitled or not. Alright, so it seems like there are people who are pissed off about the ending for different reasons. There's people who hate it because it doesn't reflect the choices they made. There are people who hate it because it's depressing. And there are people who hate it because it has huge plot holes. And I think I'm in the third group. I, I'm i not overly bothered by the fact that it's depressing or the fact that it's uh, it doesn't like reflect every little choice you made up to that point. But there's some massive inconsistencies in the ending where you're just like, how is that possible? That's outrageous. And that's what really bothered me about it. I, I agree with that. I played it uh, myself as well. And honestly, I've never really held the series in the very high regard um, you know, it was it's it's good, but it's not really groundbreaking for me. I, I I believe that the original was actually the best one, but that's of course my opinion. Um, and I agree that as far as all the ending complaints go, I think there should be some clear separation between people who just complain for the sake of complaining, and those who have legitimate issues. And like Tim said, no matter how you look at the series or the endings offered. Just the final cinematic, it it makes such logical leaps and bounds that it makes no sense to anyone, whether you're a fan of the series, if you hate the series, if if you've never played the series but somebody told you about it and then you watch the ending cinematic, you would say, well, what the heck? Why did these things just happen? This makes It makes no sense within the universe that was created for the past three games. It's just, you know, there's too many inconsistencies and... Um, even if you're watching this as a movie, it, it doesn't make sense because characters basically teleport from one place to suddenly another in the final cutscene. Yep. Did not play the games, or at least not very much, but I did see all the endings and read a couple articles about why people are complaining about the ends. The thing that really got me, though, was BioWare's, uh, I mean, the, excuse me, the, um, the released explanation or the released response to fans, which uh, I don't know if anyone else here has read. Yeah. And it was that the people, the writers were absolutely shocked. They were surprised that the fans didn't like this ending. And in the letter they said, and we think this is the 
greatest game we've ever made, and we think our games are art, and apparently they might be releasing some DLC in the future. But that tells me that they did some of this deliberately, that they were trying to be artistic by having an ending that doesn't make sense and that has plot holes and that... No, see... It doesn't reflect. I, it, could you no, think I, they could be trying to pull something like this? An In My Shyamalan, you know? <laughs> no, that, I, I, that's think the they genuinely, I think they genuinely thought they were making a good ending, which is, is kind of shocking. <laughs> but like, I, I, I have issues with the fact that it doesn't really take into account all of the choices that you've made throughout the three games, which is kind of what Mass Effect is about. It's, it's about you personalizing your own world about choosing whether you should kill or not kill someone, and then that's kind of completely ignored in the last ten minutes of the game, which seems quite ridiculous. Even also, Bioware did promise that your choices would have an impact on the ending, and it didn't, so they basically just lied. But then there's also, there's also the issue, um, I think they've said that they're, they're going to address it in DLC, what, whatever that means, but... Um, do you think that fans complaining that they should pander to fans and um, and change it because so many people are unhappy with it? Yeah, that's kind of one of the hotter topics that yeah, has come I think out of this. Big issue, yeah. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, it's too late to actually change things. The only thing you can do is expand it and whatnot through DLC. Um, I think fans are right to complain the way they did, but I think there's a lot of confusion and and even anger, I would say, because a lot of sites have picked up uh, on this coverage of fans complaining and basically started calling fans entitled uh, without, you know, potentially finishing the game themselves, because they think that, as you mentioned, um, you know, developers shouldn't abide by whatever the fans demand. They should make their own creatively free game, you know, but I think in this case, fans were right to say that this sucks. I don't know if they were right to demand um, that it be changed. That's kind of a more uh, a community slash fan base thing that they decided to go ahead with that. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely some some discussion that should take place about whether or not developers should actually abide by what the fans demand. Well, it, it is a curse of three calls in a in lots of um, media, you know, books, movies, TV, you know. There's always controversy at endings because you're so invested in the game and characters and, you know, people that, you know, it's never going to particularly unfold exactly how you want it to. And, you know, by that time, you you have to take into account you're not just making it for yourself. Um, you know, you it is going to a dedicated audience who, you know, feel very strongly about it. But that shouldn't deter your kind of um, artistic... And like your kind of narrative path, you have, yeah, you have to stay true. You can't pander. There's not really much of a narrative path for the endings. It's, yeah, it's quite that, that's, it's, quite, that's it's quite poor. Having said everything that we did, and you bring up a good point. You know, do people really expect the endings of movies or books to be changed? No, I don't think that's well, going to happen. Yeah. No, but no, you said fans don't have the right to you know ask uh, for no, the. No, no, I didn't say they don't have the right. I said, do they really expect? They, they don't expect, but I think games have. For, for two reasons. In the first place, and Mass Effect is a great example, on a lot of games, we're used to multiple endings. And at least having some choice in the kind of ending that we like. But in the second place, games now, so many games are, are 
are living games. You know, we expect more DLC. We expect follow-up. Um, we expect changes and updates. Uh, it's not unfair to ask for those changes and updates to uh, to affect the ending. But I think if you kind of renege on a promise, um, then you have to be held accountable to it. Um, if they flatly stated outright that this thing was only going to have one ending um, that that they decided on, then obviously it would have been already on the table. But it's like you're being promised something, but you get something else. So, you know, you have a right to be annoyed when, you, you know, your choices are kind of boxed in to one thing, which has kind of segues into nothingness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a hot topic to discuss, and we'll potentially see how things unfold a couple of months from now when the details about the DLC are announced. Here's the one thing I'm worried that with the DLC, especially if they add in another ending or something, I don't think anyone will fall all that much better if they no. throw in a fourth choice where everyone ends up happy <laughs> and they explicitly answer some of the plot holes by, you know, by saying the wizard did it, if you know the reference. Yeah, it was all a dream. It was all a dream. And then Shepard wakes up in the Cerberus. <laughs> And, you know, embraces Joker. But Joker's, right. you know, got no I legs think, anymore. Well, I think the people... Well, <laughs> people are complaining about so many small things in the ending. I'm, yeah, that if developers come away from this thinking, oh, fans don't like sad endings. No, that's no, not, no. That's no, not no, the no, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's exactly. That's my, that's I, my point, though. There's a, there's, a, there's a possibility for them to really miss the point here. I think it's kind of ridiculous that Bioware would say that they think this game is art and then say that they're, they're actually going to listen to people complaining about it and change it to be better. I mean, art should be it should be their own personal creation, what they think it is, and they thought that was a good ending. So I think it's a little bit ridiculous that they would listen to fans. It is the vocal minority, though, I think. It's, yeah. more, it's more, you know, small groups being louder and having... Um, you know, a, a higher soapbox to stand on, where there is, you know, a lot of people who, you know, maybe not care as much. Well, I think most people don't care. They think my thing is a bad ending. Like, I think I don't think it's a great ending, but I don't care whether they go back and change it or not. It's it's been and gone. Like it, it is what it was. Yeah, I think people need to move on. Agreed. <laughs> Moving on to the supposed leak of Grand Theft Auto V information by an apparently angry ex-Rockstar employee. And the background on the story is is that it, it's what happens when the industry journalism blows things out of proportion without checking their sources, which unfortunately happens quite a lot. And it's one of the reasons that we didn't actually run the story at all, as big as that might seem. And the reason for that is the information was posted by a throwaway account on GameSpot.com forums, which were subsequently deleted, but not before the um, quality quality staff at Examiner.com grabbed it and uh, decided to post it as a fact. And from that point, a couple of other sites pick it up, and of course it goes from there. That everybody, it exploded. Everybody, um, yeah, everybody discussing it. And the funny part is, is that the post on GameSpot forums actually originated on Reddit, and it was a copy-paste of information that was uh, quote-unquote leaked in November, actually, which was subsequently proven to be fake. And the best part of it all is the Reddit user who posted this info and created this thousand-reply thread on Reddit uh, went on to post in that very same thread 
saying that essentially there was all a lie, all rehashed information, and he just wanted to see how many sites pick it up as a big mm-hmm. joke. I think um, it's interesting because obviously the information um, you know could have been taken from the um, the trailer, but then if you expand on that enough um, and don't go too crazy with it. Then th- those those little threads you can weave into you know a news sweater um, that you know people can wear and you know reblog or whatever because that, because it's, it's because it's quite detailed. That's exactly what he's done. Everything that he said it sounds plausible, but it's all things that you could you could make up and that you could uh, you could infer from the trailer and from past GTAs. None of it's like ridiculous or unbelievable, which I think is why it's been accepted by so many people. And that's why I think. The problem is these days that it's just it can be frustrating when people, and especially big sites, you know, you would think that they do a little bit of research on where this information comes from, just because you know their sister site or another big site picks it up. I don't think it's out of their scope of work to trace the story from the beginning, rather than just source the other big site that's already carrying the story. You know what I mean? Okay. It would be good journalism to at least check where you get your facts from in the first place instead of just pick it up randomly off somewhere from the internet. It, obviously, it is journalism one-on-one, but uh, with sites, it's all about you know how many people visit it. And even if you spin a spurious story and mm. that, isn't, that isn't corroborated by evidence, if mm. you're getting, you know, I'd say a million page hits, then the kind of thing is, well, who cares? You and, know? and I think the other side of that is, well, look at all the other sites that picked it up. Yeah. So we have to provide comparable coverage. Yeah, you can be forced into that. But, you know, obviously, you know, good journalism is appreciated. And, you know, you obviously use uh, lose some kind of stock in your site if you um, comment on things that aren't grounded in fact. And while we're on the topic of rumors, Kotaku, the famous site that likes to spill the beans, mm-hmm. potentially true, potentially not, uh, this week came out with some information about PlayStation 4. And some of the some of the more interesting things there was the um, proposed hardware specifications, which sound reasonable, um, but also the fact that it won't allow users or it will have some kind of strict uh, limits on used games. And this has been actually rumored to be in for the next Xbox as well. So I guess the topic of discussion is: What do you guys think about the common topic for both PS3 and? 360 and their next generation counterparts having some kind of system that deters used games more so than it does now with the inclusion of the online pass. PC basically already has a system where used games are invalid for the most part because you have services like Steam and Origin where you have a single game linked to your account and people don't really seem all that pissed off about it although with the PC used games haven't really been prevalent for quite a while and I think if uh, if they were removed on consoles, people would be kind of up in arms at first, but they'd get used to it pretty quickly. Yeah, it makes sense from the company's perspective, but it is it's quite shitty for the consumer because um, it's it's a cheap way to play games, and games are quite expensive. New games are expensive for your average consumer if you're going to buy, I don't know, a couple a month. Um, yeah, so and I, I don't know if they would have some other kind of system in place um, where you could get money back for trading in games. I don't know, but... Um, as as for the companies, yeah, you can see why it makes sense. It definitely does make sense for Sony and Microsoft. But would would they lose some? Would they lose part of the market? Would people get pissed off and and not buy a console because of this? 
I think it's definitely nothing new if you're from the PC background, because the concept of used games, like Tim said, doesn't really exist. But I think for for console market, especially for things like rentals, you know, how would you handle rentals if you're using the same copy of the game that you want to rent out, but it's going to be only like the first level or whatnot until the people buy the full game as is on the digital market or something. So, well, it kind of seems like um, you know we, we're getting further away from actually owning a game. You know, back when uh, with like PC and console games, once you bought that game, you know, it was it was kind of yours. But now it feels like companies are kind of lending it to us and they decide whether whether or not we can play it, whether or not, um, you know, instead of us actually having it and especially on PC, being able to mod things without being locked out and things like that, and being able to, you know, have our copy and do what we like with it kind of thing. Next up, we'll talk about some things that we're actually currently playing. And I can start. I'm still rumbling my way through FIFA Street because it is a pretty fun game and it is capable of filling out that need for footy until the big UEFA Euro comes around. And I am still playing through Journey, which we've extensively discussed on the show. How far are you? Have you not finished it yet? Oh, I have, certainly. I've just gone back through a couple more times. Yeah. Is there replay value? I think it's pretty enough to play through a couple times for sure. And I'm also somewhat of an achievement hunter, so... Oh, are you are you searching the lands for the symbols? No, I'm not that dedicated, but I did go through to get, um, you know, a couple of them, like, playing through with a different yeah. person and all that kind of stuff. All right, okay. Do you just want a huge scarf? I've done that the first time through, actually. I'm just that good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've been playing uh, Shogun 2... Uh, Fall of the Samurai, which is a standalone expansion for last year's uh, Shogun 2, and it's pretty excellent. They they basically fix all three of the problems that Shogun 2 had, which is a uh, dodgy AI, bad optimization, and some uh, rough uh, visuals and spots. But it's also pretty hard. I think my re- review is going to be delayed because initially I tried to do a uh, playthrough of the campaign under the normal difficulty, but I just had my ass handed to me in like 20 turns. I had uh, I was bankrupt and I like five different provinces who were rebelling against me and I, I was I just gave up so now I'm doing another campaign on easy and I'm hoping to get to some of the uh, new elements like railroads and gatling guns later on but uh, it's been pretty enjoyable so far. That's good. Do you think it's working out for them having these? Um, as I understand, it's lower priced, so it's standalone as well. Um, so do you think then it's any value for anybody to buy Shogun Two if they have Fall of the Samurai? Uh, yeah, I think so. They're very, they're pretty different experiences. Like uh, Shogun 2 took place during the 1500s. This game takes place during the 1800s, and it has a more of an emphasis on like uh, firearms and uh, cannons and stuff like that. Where Shogun 2 is all samurai swords and uh, cavalry, so they offer very different experiences. So uh, whether you're interested in uh, one time period or another might determine which game you get. Also, a lot of the uh, improvements they made to Shogun 2 Fall of the Samurai, they added to Shogun 2 in a patch, so it's basically the same uh, quality that Fall of the Samurai is now. Okay, that's good. There was um, there was uh, issues with AI in uh, Shogun 2, because um, I, I think I told Alex, but I was actually I actually tested the game for uh, for for the company, so there was a lot more issues again at the beginning, and especially with the difficulty as well. Um, and, and going bankrupt in provinces and people rebelling and there used to be 
uh, spawns in rebellious camps where they'd spawn about um, like a 10,000 strong troop on your third turn. Um, the AI was definitely one of the, the biggest hang-ups for the game, I think. But I think they did clean it up a lot by the time it went to release and got patch. But it's it's always been difficult. Some industry insight there. I can yeah. give you more, I'll tell you. Uh, I'm, well, I should be picking up Silent Hill HD Collection tomorrow. It's actually been really hard to get hold of because of game closing down, which is where I would have got it from. And um, the game station is still open, doesn't actually have it. And it's not in Tesco, so I've had to order it online, so I'll start on that tomorrow. Um, but at the moment, I've been playing Darksiders because it, uh, it was reduced on PSN, so I thought I'd pick that up and check it out. Quite an old title, well, a year or two old now. Um, it's a pretty cool mix between uh, God of War and Zelda, mm. and uh, yeah, quite enjoying it. I'm working through Defenders of Ardania, which is a the essentially multiplayer tower defense game. Uh, it's probably the most thorough tower defense game you've ever played. It's thorough. not uh, most thorough, meaning I was, I've been, I've been honestly surprised at how much they're able to bring into it. Like it's not just upgrading your units and upgrading your towers. You also have hero units, and they threw in economic upgrades for you, and mm. they have a, a nice variety of... Uh, they're a good variety of maps, and the uh, visual style is, is also excellent. Having said that, I think it, tower defense as a game, there's only so much that you can do with it, but well worth the 15 bucks. And it is from Paradox, which is kind of where all that complexity and layered experience is coming from, no doubt. True, yes. So does it do anything unique with the tower defense um, not, <clears throat> genre, not, or is it a pretty classical tower defense game? Not really, actually. Uh, which is a bit of a disappointment. There's no, There are no big surprises here, but there's a lot to do, if that makes mm. any sense. So what's upcoming, then, in terms of articles or games? What are you guys looking forward to? I, myself... Just picked up the awkwardly and somewhat confusingly released middle of the week Ridge Racer Unbounded. And it's so far, I've only got about an hour or so into it, it's playing quite a bit like a mix between Burnout and Split Second, and it's it's decently fun so far. So that's probably going to be a review sometime next week. Uh, I'll be reviewing um, Silent Hill HD Collection when I finally get hold of it. Yeah, and as I said, I'll be uh, putting out a... Uh all the samurai review maybe in a, a week's time once I uh, finally get to the end of the campaign. What about upcoming games, guys? The month of April looks somewhat thin. Risen 2, I guess. Not much else that I am uh, interested in anyways. <clears throat> uh, the Witch is coming out. Witcher 2, um, Assassin of Kings, coming out for consoles. So yep. I, didn't, I never checked it out on PC, so I'm quite interested in that. Yeah, it's quite a good game. And Prototype 2 as well, hitting stores in April. Uh, Devil May Cry HD Collection, another HD collection. And now for our question of the episode. This time Matthew was assigned to come up with something super crazy and quirky for everybody to answer. And what have you got? Oh, it's not that crazy and quirky, but I thought it fit in with the theme. Um, what are your top three video game endings? Uh-huh. I was hoping you would ask this, actually. Yeah, you got some good Blast. ones prepared. Uh, no, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start off with the the one that I that always stood out for me, which is the uh, the original Mafia. I thought it had a sweet ending because it. Uh, okay. I, I don't think I'll spoil it for you, but it, it just wrapped everything up so nicely. And then you think it's over, but then there's another kind of surprise at the end, a, a bit of a twist, and that really uh, 
that stuck with me. So that that's my number one ending. Number two, probably a game I finished uh, recently, actually, which would be Red Dead Redemption. I thought oh, awesome. Uh, for number three, uh, I can't think of anything else, so I think I'll go with Cryostasis. It had a really uh, a strange ending, but it was uh, very interesting, and it took a bit of uh, work to figure it out, but I thought it was a pretty a pretty great ending. Yeah, I mentioned Red Dead Redemption. That was, that was, it was all right. It was kind of weird, but yeah, it's definitely notable, I think. I'd say uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 um, as an, an ending. As, as far as bookending the series, uh, it did it uh, very well. Um, I think it carried that momentum, and it did, did the thing that Mafia did, where um, something happens and you think it's the end, but then it goes back to the cutscene. I think it's the only time I've played something where that happened, and I was just kind of staring blankly at the screen going, no, this, you know, not like this. Kind of thing. <laughs> and then it comes back to it, and you just think, oh, God, thank God. Um, and then second would, second would probably be Final Fantasy VIII. I thought that was uh, awesome, and it really, you were taking on that kind of swelling adventure that kind of culminated, even though, even though it was a little weird, um, it, was, it was still sweet. And um, finally... The third one, I would say, is um, Tenchu 3, uh, back on the PS2. Really kind of um, bookended that series well, and it had, you know, some really strong characters. And it had, you know, the action and, you know, a nice story too. And I thought it just finished everything off, like, really nicely, and there was a lot of payoff there. Uh, well, first for me, I would have to put in Braid. Uh, but not for the reason that people think, actually. <laughs> actually, I'm not going to spoil... Uh, when people talk about the end of Braid, they usually think about the last level, which has a twist, uh, which I won't spoil here, but... Yeah. And I actually think is overrated. But the end, I think the real point of the ending to Braid, as the part everyone forgets, was that, which is the epilogue, which is a whole level of essentially falling action gameplay the puzzles suddenly get simpler and easier, and the conflict in the story has already been resolved. Uh, it's all just falling action and conclusion. And this is something that I think is drastically missing from game endings. Uh, but in Braid, it gave it just a beautiful sense of finality. It was wonderful. Uh, and then, let's see here, my other two on the list, Portal 2, I thought had an excellent ending, uh, oh. tone-wise especially. Uh, I was so worried during Portal 2. Portal 1 was very tongue-in-cheek, sort of, you know, comedic. And then the ending to Portal 2 uh, sort of reminded the player that uh, this was all just sort of a fun experience. Uh, you know, the story might not make complete sense. It's kind of, it's a bit of a funny setting that you're in. They did an excellent job. And then finally, uh, believe it or not, Final Fantasy X had a great ending. A lot, for the same reasons as Mafia, well, Mafia, somewhat, I think. The ending was mediocre, it was okay, but if you stayed until after the credits in Final Fantasy X, you see a wonderfully ambiguous cutscene that ties into the beginning and doesn't necessarily force a sequel, but opens the door. Yeah, definitely. Pretty good job. Well, my, um, people have already said two of mine, I was going to have Braid and um, uh, Red Dead Redemption. Um, but another one that I kind of liked was um, God of War, the original God of War, the ending battle. Um, I can't say exactly what it is because we're not going to go into spoilers, but um, there's part of the ending battle that um, it just tied in nicely with uh, what happens, the, the backstory of the, of the character Kratos, and um, it was kind of a moment of, well, not subtlety, but like an actual moment of um, 
meaningfulness in um, in what is otherwise a completely unsubtle game. <laughs> well, mine would have to be starting in reverse because I'm cool like that. Uh, number, three, <laughs> number three would have to be Uncharted 2. Yeah. Um, it was quite a great game in terms of narrative overall and the ending certainly lived up to it. Um, unfortunately, Uncharted 2 set up Uncharted 3 for too high expectations and unfortunately yeah. dropped the ball, but Nonetheless, Uncharted 2 had an excellent ending. Um, number two would have to be Max Payne. Oh, yeah. An absolute classic. And I really, you know, I can't say anything more about it than other than it's just a timeless kind of experience. Yep. And my number one ending, actually, might not be from a game that many people have played, but it is from Dreamfall, The Longest Journey. Oh. <gasps> dun, really? Dun, dun. Yes. <laughs> Dreamfall? Okay, yes. keep going. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that sarcasm or is that a... Oh, well, def- defend this a, l- a little. I mean... <laughs> just, uh, I, yeah. I just thought it was amazing. I'm sorry. You know, I played the original first, and then I what played was... Dreamfall, and I just thought it was a fantastic story. It, it was one of those stories that you say, oh, you were asleep the whole time or whatnot, but that's not really the case, because you were actually being told things in retrospect is what it is. And so yeah, it does have a cliffhanger ending, but I just thought it was it was just great. I don't need to defend it. It made me cry at one point. <laughs> oh, that works. That works. Fair I was just surprised that I was just surprised to hear those words come out of your mouth. I when I got to the ending, I thought I I, I kind of thought they were just being pretentious. Just really, I know we'll mess with you, you know. And, you know, sort of throw throw this at you real quick without really with I I didn't I thought they were trying to be serious without without having good reason. But what do you mean like what? it's try try I'm okay sorry? shit anything? Yeah, like, try. Uh, exactly. Thank you. Try. But the thing is, you know, if it affects you that way, then it's a success. There you go. Yeah. That's about it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you back on April fifteenth. And as always, please remember to visit www.newgamenetwork.com for the latest and greatest video game news and reviews.